listeners and welcome to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on the morning of November 29th, 2022. And my in-studio guest today is Michelle Yehi Lee, Bureau Chief for the Washington Post in Tokyo and in Seoul to talk about the challenges of doing journalism on North Korea. But first, before I begin, please a reminder to leave a review about this podcast or episode on iTunes or whatever platform you use and share this episode with colleagues, friends and even people you don't like, even people in North Korea, they're welcome to listen too. On Spotify, you can leave a rating but no review, so please do that. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, please click like and subscribe. I still have a dream. I don't mention it anymore, but I would like to get to 1% of Joe Rogan's listenership before I die. So let's see if we can do that. Secondly, check out NK News, where you can find in-depth news stories each and every day. Consider buying a subscription for a year. It is much more affordable than you think. In fact, if you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the excellent journalism that my NK News colleagues do. And thirdly, you can follow NK News on Twitter and myself. I'm at JackOZ. So my guest today, Michelle Yehi Lee. Michelle is Washington Post's Tokyo slash Seoul Bureau Chief covering Japan and the Koreas. That's right, there's two of them. She's also president of the Asian American Journalists Association. You can find her on Twitter at M-Y-H-L-E-E. Welcome on the show, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Now, you work, as I just said, for the Washington Post and I work here for NK News, so in a certain sense, we're competitors, but we're also peers in the space, and we suffer and grapple with some of the same challenges. Do you hold the same fascination for North Korea that I do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you clearly have been fascinated for much longer than I have. You're saying I'm old, and it's true. <laughs> Guilty as charged, yes. I started the beat about just over a year ago. I moved to Tokyo right around the Olympics last year, and I started officially at the end of August. But yeah, I mean, North Korea is, you know, endlessly fascinating, endlessly frustrating from a reporting perspective. But absolutely, I mean, it's a big, big part of my job. Now, let's talk about the challenges of reporting on North Korea when almost nobody has come in or out of that country since COVID began in, uh, gosh, what was it, January 2020. Uh, you wrote a story for the Washington Post last year in September entitled, What's Happening Inside North Korea? Since the pandemic, the window has slammed shut. And that's very much what it feels like. Has anything changed since you wrote that article? Not really. I mean, I feel like in some ways a window has shut even more. And it's we've pretty much lost any prospect of it reopening anytime soon. I think what, even when I wrote that last year, I was a little hopeful that maybe it'll change in the coming months, but it obviously has not. Um, let me correct your analogy there, or let me add to your analogy. Sure. So, you can't slam shut a window more that's already slammed. What you shut? What you can do? <laughs> you can lock it. You can lock it, <laughs> or you can slam the storm shutters behind the window. There you go. Right? You so can, you can extra seal layer. it. You can seal it. Yeah. yeah. So at any number of construction projects you'd like to do on this window, <laughs> you can. Yeah. I mean, as you know, it takes like a constellation of sources to get to understand even a little bit of what's going on inside. And um, I wrote that story shortly after I started the job and I tried to kind of build that constellation and get to meet people from all sorts of different paths of learning about North Korea from different perspectives. And I just realized like no one really has insight into what's going on anymore. No one's going in, no one's going out. And as a reporter, it's just really impossible to get any fresh and credible information mm. to the extent that you could even get it in the first place about North Korea. So how can we in the media say anything sensible about North Korea? How is reporting on North Korea unlike writing about UFO sightings, for example? <laughs> right, exactly. I sometimes think about reporting on North Korea kind of like the parable or story of like the blind men touching the elephant. I'm sure many people also make this analogy. 
but no one quite has a really credible view of what's going on. So none of us should even pretend that we know what we're doing, what we're reporting on. And I think to the extent that you can, to be responsible about telling readers or viewers that, look, we can only try to make a best educated guess that you can never fully know what's going on. You, you know, North Korea is a very closed society. And to try to make that clear as much as possible in your reporting is important. And then just talking to as many different people as possible who are viewing North Korea from through their lens and then understanding what their lens is and putting a check into that lens in your reporting process, I think is ah. really important. So uh, the uh, to sort of work against the bias in a sense, or at least point it out perhaps. Right, exactly. Because everyone who's commenting to you about North Korea is coming with their set of facts, their yep. set of viewpoints and opinions on North Korea. And that's the case with every story. But I feel like it's hyper like that with North Korea. Maybe it's because none of us really know what's going on. Right. And you kind of like dig deep into the views that you have about the country and everything you see is sort of serves to confirm that bias. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I feel like I should one of these days have uh, psychologist uh, Danny Kahneman on the show to talk about uh, confirmation biases and all yeah. the different uh, the the different mental bugs that we have that trip up how we see things. Yes, and it's like a Rorschach test too, many times. Like the recent... Um, Whoops, sorry. there was a microphone cord there. People. <laughs> I'm gesticulating with my hands. Sometimes I actually have guests sit on my hands, like the East, uh, <laughs> the East German Stasi when they were interviewing a, uh, a suspected uh, anti-communist spy. They would have them sit on their hands on the chair. <laughs> okay, I will fold my hands. Your listeners can't see, but I was gesturing very wildly. Um, Rorschach. <laughs> you're talking yes. about uh, Rorschach, Rorschach, not from the Watchmen uh, movie or comic book, no, but the, uh, right. the original the inkblot. inkblot that, test. Yeah, yeah like... Uh, I see like a butterfly, the, you see an elephant. Exactly. Like the Jue photos that came out, the daughter of Kim ah. Jong-un. Everyone pretty much saw what they wanted, right? Oh, this is about succession. Oh, this is about missiles. This is about... You know, maybe Kim Jong-un's sick and he's bringing out his daughter. You could pretty much project anything you want and no one's going to ask you for a correction. We're going to come back to those photos later on. Uh, I don't want to jump ahead there. Uh, So what value is lost by not having face-to-face conversations with people who are in North Korea now or at least people who have been there recently? Yeah, I mean, I I absolutely think it's the recency of the information that's available. Pretty much anyone who's been in and maybe seen, been able to see pick up on certain things, talk to certain officials. And obviously, they're not going to be told full truths from working inside the country, but they could at least imbue some of the environment or some conversations they picked up here and there and relay that to you. But without that, the information we have is really from, what, 2019 at the earliest. Yeah. And even then, even before the pandemic, it was difficult for American news gathering agencies to uh, to get stuff on North Korea because Americans weren't able to travel to North Korea yeah. without specific permission of the State Department. Exactly. And I think a lot of times it's sort of the casual conversations that visitors to North Korea might have had with certain officials. Mm-hmm. Maybe they drank with some members and, you know, something came out at a certain point. That's the kind of stuff that really informs not maybe your exact storytelling, but at least your context of what's going on inside that could inform how you tell a story. Are reporters still able to get information out through the use of Chinese cell phones by people inside North Korea to call cell phones outside? Yes, but then again, you only get a certain viewpoint into the country, right? People who can actually catch those cell networks Mm -hmm. and be able to talk to you. Of course, like Asia Press and Daily NK are maintaining contact with their sources in the country, and I'm constantly talking with them as well. But 
also have to keep in mind that they only come from a certain geographic area of the country. They have to be somewhere near China, don't they? Right. Yeah. And, and it, there's a danger there, isn't there? I mean, it's quite dangerous for the people who are calling from North Korea. Yes, yeah, and it's increasingly dangerous because of the crackdowns on the use of these cell phones. Yeah, in that sense, reporting on any other authoritarian state, such as uh, Iran, uh, even China, Russia, is a lot easier than reporting on North Korea because they can get stuff out. They can have access to the internet, for example. Right. Even my colleagues who do cover China and are not allowed to go into the country right now, um, they're based in Taiwan or Seoul, at least they have some access to like social media. Yep. And they can call people inside the country and get a sense. They can't get the underground reporting, but they do have some insight. But we lack that. Now, is this just a problem for journalists alone? Or is it also something that governments have to contend with when they make policies that touch on North Korea? I think that's the bigger implication of this. Or maybe not bigger, because information is important no matter what. But the other implication to this, that even policymakers are working with the same limited information that we're working with. I mean... Perhaps there are some intermediaries here and there. We know that some people are still talking to, you know, members or people from North Korea and um, diplomats and such. But for the most part, negotiators, diplomats, they're all working with this sort of limited environment on information. Yeah. And of course, we have to assume that intelligence agencies are able to get access to some stuff that's not open source, right, that we don't have eyes on. So uh, the signal intelligence, the map intelligence, the satellite intelligence, and the human intelligence. Right. So they have some stuff. But yeah, broadly speaking, the framework is the same. Now, what can we learn about what North Korea tells us through its own media and through its social media channels like uh, China's Weibo and, uh, and YouTube? I mean, I think the danger is there as well on that in terms of relying solely on what North Korea is telling us. I mean, that's why we do the reporting that we do to try to offset whatever packaged messages they're trying to send, try to get anything closer to a more authentic glimpse of what's happening. And that's why I think the human um, sources going in and out of the country can try can serve that role as, of augmenting the information that North Korea is putting out directly. But at this point, we're sort of limited to that what, what North Korea is telling us. And even then, we don't always know exactly what North Korea is trying to tell us. Now, you're based in Japan, which means you have access to the Chosen Soren or the Jochongyon organization of ethnic Koreans who are resident in Japan, uh, but who are pro-North Korea. Can you learn much from them? For instance, they have their own newspaper and website. Yes, they do have their newspaper website. I do check those, but Chosen Soren even has not allowed the same access to reporters as they used to before mm. COVID. Oh. So they used to host like receptions or events where it's mostly open for diplomats, but sometimes reporters would go in uh -huh. and you know they would kind of freak out and not want to talk on the record. But that hasn't happened in several years. So what I understand about them right now is that they're going through some leadership transitions, so they're a little bit rocky anyway internally. Oh. But they have not been eager to really engage with reporters either. Now, in Japan, you can also access North Korean websites that are blocked here in South Korea by the national security law, like uh, Uri Minzokiri and Nenara and uh, the Nodong Shinwon's own websites. Do you, do you look at them often? I do, and you're right. We, do, we can access those easier than you can in South Korea. Although when I go to Rivinjokiri, the website gets flagged for my company as a potentially dangerous website. So I've been told not to access that website. Is it trying to, to plant a, a Trojan or, or a virus or something in, in your uh, 
hardware? It, it must be. Otherwise, it w- wouldn't have triggered wow. the company's security protocols. Okay. So, so if anyone's listening from Uri Minjokiri, do uh, you know, make your website safer so that journalists can look at it. No one wants a Trojan. Yeah, I mean, I was told like that I should have a separate computer to access that website, uh, but I, I don't, I don't have a separate like blank computer. But you're right, that is more accessible from um, Japan, and I can log into that. And I mean, obviously, the same caveats would apply that you have to uh, take bear in mind that this is government uh, information. But is, is there useful stuff there? Yeah, I mean, I think even photos that they post mm. of, you know, like new facilities being built or new apartments and all of that can definitely inform us about what might be happening or at least what the regime wants to show off during this time. But I think we kind of know what themes those are serving right now, which is um, economic growth, economic stability, and trying to send that message during a time of COVID and during a time of obviously not economically stable time. And understanding those photos and announcements through that lens, I think, is really helpful. But even then, it's hard to do stories, I think, about like, here's what North Korea said it's doing, and here are the photos it released, and here are the apartments it's giving out. And like, you can do that, but then to actually be able to bring some sort of check to what's going on inside, I think that's really difficult. I saw some very nice photographs yesterday that were... uh Originally, I think from the Nenara website, but it had been reprinted by the Korea Herald on their website. Uh, photos of Kumgang Sun in the fall with the uh, beautiful leaves and the, and the rock formations and the waterfalls. It's quite stunning. Uh, d- didn't learn anything about North Korea from it, but they're good <laughs> photos. It was, yeah. ni- it was nice that the Korea Herald was uh, kind enough to reprint them for us, uh, for those of us without a VPN. I'm assuming that maybe the Korea Herald got it through Yonhap. I think Yonhap has some kind of an arrangement with North Korea to republish stories from KCNA or uh, things like that. Yeah, I mean, most of the wires do, right? Mm, like AP, right, wires, Reuters, yeah. yeah. Now, another thing about living in Japan is that, of course, the Japanese people and the Japanese, the government in Tokyo have their own perspective on North Korea and what it does. Tell us a little bit about that. You're based there. Uh, you're visiting here in Seoul now. But do Japanese people feel threatened by North Korea? Is it something, it's a hot topic in Tokyo? Well, it really depends who you ask, I think. I think lately, with all the missiles, they're so frequent that it kind of blurs mm. in the Japanese public's mind and perhaps like broader public's mind. I don't know if you've seen, but whenever there's like a there's a missile test on Japanese Twitter, there's this meme that goes around of Kim Jong-un being a baseball player. No, I've not and seen that. It's, I mean, every time there's a missile test, there are like photoshopped images of Kim Jong-un as a baseball player, like swinging and hitting another home run. And huh. so people will poke fun at Kim Jong-un every time there is a missile test. But even nowadays, I think they're so frequent that I don't even see that meme going around as mm. much as I used to even earlier this year. So there is a little bit of that where they kind of expect the missile test to happen. But when the uh, missile went over Japan in October, that definitely was a big, uh, big news um, in Japan. Were you, you know. there then? Yes. Did alarms go off in the streets? And- N- not for me. It was a different part of Japan. But it did make me look up where I'm supposed to hide if there is a missile headed toward uh. my direction. But I'm like, I will probably be reporting. So I don't know if I should be hiding at under this Right. Your editors mightn't be happy if they find out that Michelle was <laughs> exactly. hiding. Exactly. Yeah. I should be reporting instead. But I think there's also growing animosity toward North Korea in general, and that you're seeing that in like harassment and bullying of Zainichi Korean communities in Oh, Japan. is that on the way up again? Yes. Oh. Uh, especially in recent months, mm. recent weeks with the missile tests, 
that's happening again. There's been graffiti on mm. subway stations in Zainichi areas. The schools, the uh, chosen schools, are also having their students being harassed, uh, students being harassed on trains or outside the schools. So we're seeing an uptick in that. And another part of it is the Kishida government wanting to resolve the abduction issue with Japan and making a big deal about it, which is something that obviously started under the Abe administration and Kishida is um, continuing forward. Now, with the uh, the schools of the Zainichi uh, Koreans, I, I think back in the, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when the support was much stronger for North Korea, I imagine that they would have seen it as, or would have blamed the, the Japanese public for, for the bad treatment. But I wonder now, uh, things are we're living in a different time, do the Zainichi Koreans who are res- on the receiving end of this uh, maltreatment, do they blame North Korea for start setting off that chain reaction, or do they still uh, blame the Japanese? They actually still do blame the Japanese. They're not happy with the missile tests. I was actually at a chosen school Ah. a couple weeks ago. It was the morning when Japan issued a J-alert because they thought another missile crossed over Japan, but it was a false alarm. And it happened to be a morning I was going to one of the chosen schools. And... They had this like parent meeting, parents meeting uh, of the school because the school just, you know, they had an event and they started the meeting talking about the missile test Mm. and the J alert. And they were very upset at the Japanese government for issuing it um, when it didn't cross over Japan. Uh. And they were upset that the news coverage didn't quite explain what they felt like was a fuller story of the missile test and that it didn't cross over Japan. So they still had a lot of frustration over that. And they fault like the rhetoric about abduction issues and stuff mm. to the rising animosity directed at Zainichu community. Do they recognize that abductions did take place? Because um, Kim Jong-il himself in 2001 or two right. uh, admitted them to uh, then Prime Minister Koizumi. Yes, I haven't asked them directly about abductions uh, recently, but I do. What the sense that I got was that they do understand that North Korea does actions that they're not happy with, Mm. but they believe that the support for Zainichi community and schools should continue regardless. And uh, uh, what is it like going to one of those schools? I've never been. Oh, it was fascinating. I walked in and there were students learning Korean, but it was not like Korean that we're used to. And it's also not quite North Korean either. Oh. So I kind of stood there listening and was like, what Korean is this? And mm-hmm. I eventually learned that like Joseon Mal, Joseon um, language yeah. is sort of an interesting mixture of South Korean and North Korean accents. Wow. And um, just even listening to that and watching the kids learn that was really interesting. You know, there are photos of Kim Jong-il. no. Uh, well, yeah, both Kim, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il yep. in the schools. Uh, some of the classrooms I went to had like all these paintings of Kim Il-sung surrounded by children. Oh, yeah. And um, it was it was a really fascinating experience actually going into the schools. Did you get any sign that the children themselves were consuming South Korean cultural products, either Netflix or fo- songs or things like that? Not there, no. Mm. Um, in fact, I went into the music room of one of the schools and all the CDs they had were... North Korean propaganda songs. Ah, okay. Uh, have you been to their university uh, in Tokyo? I think it's called Choson University. No, I've not. I've been to a Joseon school in Osaka and in Saitama, but I've not been to the university yet. That's my goal is to one day make it there and also in the uh, the headquarters of the Choson Soren. Yeah. 
Uh, now, unlike uh, here at NK News and NK Pro, which is all North Korea all the time, you work for a U.S.-based newspaper that tries to cover world events as well as what's happening in America, and that means there's always a competition for space and readers' attention. Tell us about that. Is, is North Korea interesting to U.S. domestic readers of the Washington Post? Yes, but also no, in a way. It's... Nowadays, it is tricky. I think the media environment is very tricky for a lot of news articles, mm. even domestic. I mean, generally, there's a lot of news fatigue. Certainly after the Trump years, we've seen traffic uh, dip after the Trump bump of the Trump years. Mm. Um, so are you hoping for a Trump return? <laughs> no comment. Okay. <laughs> across the board. It's not just us. It's, you know, basically every other news outlet. And we're contending with that. And then we're also contending with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, mm. which sucks a lot of air out of news coverage. And rightfully so. It's a very important story, obviously. But it does make it harder for certainly other foreign news to make its way onto people's radar and sometimes even domestic news. And when it comes to like North Korea, the missile tests, um, it's really hard for people to pay attention to those, I think, when it when there are missiles that are killing people in yeah, a war right yeah, now. Yeah. So to try to make give warnings and and relay the the significance of these tests, which are still tests, it it is quite difficult to do that and cut through all of the noise that's both domestic and international news. So how do you pitch a story about North Korea to your editors and, and make it relevant to the readers? Well, our editors are always interested in North Korea stories, which is great. They always want to tell more, tell as much as possible. But I think what's changed certainly in the past like two, three years is the way we tell these stories and timing them, mm. um, which you know is very hard because you never know when other news is going to happen. Yeah. But there are certain formats or certain times or certain ways to package the stories that are getting to readers more than just like a straight up news story about a missile. So for example, for missile tests now, our bar has gotten way high mm. for when we actually write about missile tests. Um, unfortunately, uh, there are so many ballistic missile tests that, and so many short range ones that when it's a short range ballistic, we're mm. like, well, let's, you know, let's see what else is happening. But when they happen a lot at, at once or when there's a long range one, then yeah. we obviously write about it. And sometimes giving like explainers to people we found very successful because people will see news about all these missile tests, but they're really wondering, so what? Like, right. why do I care? Why should I care? What is exactly happening? Yep. And often my editors will, will ask me to step back and say, don't write this missile test story. Tell us why, why it matters. And so that's kind of how I do end up pitching stories now where I forego the news story of the day and then I do an analysis piece or an explainer piece just to kind of go with whatever breaking news that people are already seeing online. Have you ever had a complete or nearly complete story spiked or delayed so long that it was no longer relevant? On North Korea? Yeah. Uh, no, I've not had anything delayed that long or spiked. No. Okay, let's talk about one of your more recent articles. You and your Seoul-based colleague, Minju Kim, published a story on October 6th titled, He Escaped North Korea, Then Risked Everything to Go Back for His Mom. This is an incredible story. What in 30 seconds is this story about? Uh, it is a story about a rare triple defector who came out of North Korea and then went back in to bring his mom out, but then couldn't bring her out, and then he came back out of North Korea. So he crossed the river three times. 
and now he is back in South Korea. And a spoiler alert, it is a happy ending. He and his mom have been reunited here in Seoul. Yay. And your story, uh, talking about format, you uh, in the, the story, you include some videos with, of interviews with both him and his mother. Yeah, we wanted to try to have them tell the story in their words as much as possible. So in the story, hopefully you'll um, see that I, I tried not to like, you know, bring in too much research or anything like that. Just try to tell their story because the story itself is really fascinating. And the son is obviously a very, you know, he's a loving son and really cares about his mom and wanted to tell that. And the video part, I think, was really important because they had not done like an interview with a news outlet. And mm. it was important for us certainly to show them to our readers and viewers and have them tell their own story. It is a remarkable story. But was it hard to pitch yet another defection story to the editors of the Washington Post? Actually, this one was not, especially because he had such a rare re-defection story. Mm. And that was the angle that I went with. And it was something that was on our minds because remember that guy who went back in earlier this year? It was like around New Year's. He apparently jumped over the fence. Didn't he? He swam, he swam over and then he was found in the market of Kaesong? No, no, no. no the guy who like jumped over like the border and oh, he was the, the, an the acrobat gymnast, or something. Acro yeah, yeah gymnast. the gymnast guy. Mm, mm. So after that happened, we were all like, how do you, who would go back in? Why would you go back in and how? And then we met this guy and we're like, actually, this kind of fits with the questions we already had earlier this year. So ah. it was easier to talk to the others and say, hey, remember that like redefection that happened? We met a guy who actually did that and then came back out, although a different route. Although in this sense, I mean, is redefection the right word? Because he wasn't planning on staying in North Korea. He crossed the border in order to get his mother out. Right. So he wasn't saying, oh, I regret having gone to South Korea. Let me go back into North Korea, which is probably what the acrobat or gymnast was doing. Yeah, right. Right. For him, it was not like that. But it still showed like the that decision mm. and the dangers that you're actually willing to undertake when you cross back in, even though he didn't mean to. And for this story, certainly, I mean, defector stories, it can get difficult to pitch because we've heard many different defector stories. Yep. That is true. But this one, I think it, it just goes to show you that even as reporters and even at, at an outlet that does want to hear many North Korean stories, we still have to try to find ways to package it, angle it in a way that will not only get it picked up internally, but also get readers' attention. Now, defection stories are one type of story that it is easiest to tell outside North Korea for obvious reasons, but they're also hard to cross-reference with multiple sources and check accuracy and truthfulness, aren't they? Yes, and this is why this was helpful in pitching the story as well internally, because this had actual court documents that uh. we could corroborate his story with. And I was worried about doing a defector story because we all know the pitfalls of doing defector stories and only going with their accounts. But um, I felt like we had solid backing and that we found the court records, even without um, getting guidance from the defector himself. We found it independently and we were able to cross check his story. And that gave confirmation that I think is hard to come by with defector stories. And part of the challenge, too, with the border closure in, in North Korea is yeah. that people are not coming out. Yeah. And the people who are making their way out were in China. Mm -hmm. And so it is harder to find fresher defector stories as, you know, as it's harder to understand what happened before 2020. Mm. So finding a defector who has not yet been covered by media and who is willing to talk and whose story can actually be corroborated by some limited documentation, all of those were really helpful. So tell us about his first journey, his first border crossing from North Korea to South Korea uh, in May 2016. 
Yeah, so he grew up along the border and he wanted to he wanted to have, you know, a better job and that really motivated him. He wanted to get an education. So he took the usual route through Laos and Thailand mm-hmm. and made his way into South Korea. And he had told his mom he's the only child uh, of his widowed mom and his dad had uh, tried to cross into China and died along that route so Mm. his mom was really worried about him escaping but he made it safely and he had told his mom that he would be back for her in three years time so after he came to South Korea he worked and worked and saved up money to try to arrange brokers to get her out and at that point he was able to go into China fly into China because he was a South Korean citizen and wanted to meet his mom near the border mm-hmm. and arrange brokers who can help them the two of them meet but then things got complicated do many north korean defectors travel back to china to to try to do something similar or for other reasons so i talked to some human rights advocates about this and asked them is this actually rare mm. and you know we know that it is very common for defectors to try to arrange their families to come out you know that yeah. and arrange brokers but it was rare for someone to actually go and get them out and, right. and make that trek back to the border area. Like, why would you do that if you can just pay brokers to arrange it for you and you don't necessarily have to be there to accompany them mm. out? Why did he go there? He said he wanted to be there with his mom when she made her way out of China because for him, he found it isolating and scary. Right. And he knew that his mom would too. Uh, so something went wrong with the broker the, the, um, or with the trip and the mother didn't make it over into China. So he went over himself to, uh, to try to get, get her out. How long was, uh, was Kim in uh, North Korea trying to get his mother out? He was in North Korea for about 22 days, I believe. And That's a long time. That leaves a lot of opportunity for the security forces to find him. That's yeah. at least three political activity days when everyone's expected to turn up and all that sort of thing. So Yeah, it was dangerous. And he said people around him were like, you have to get out of here. You were putting so your mom in danger. So some people saw him. Okay. Yeah, 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 he was hiding with, a, I think, at a friend's house or a relative's house. Oof. And it was risky. And it's funny because he, because he had not planned on going in, his hair was dyed. Mm. It was like light brown, which mm-hmm. you would get caught immediately. Yeah. He had ear piercings and he just kind of did not look the part. So he was hiding and trying to um, convince his mom to leave and not only convince her, but also arrange brokers in a short amount of time. And he said that new he, brokers, new brokers from the and, North Korean side. Yeah. And yeah. he said he ran into a lot of just incredulous people being like, no, you didn't actually make it. And this is fraud. So what went wrong? Uh, his mom, oh, you mean? Yeah. While he was in North Korea. So he was there for 22 days. He wasn't able to get his mother out immediately. Something went, went a bit south, didn't it? Yeah, he it turned out that he did get caught and um, they did raid his mom's house when he was not there and he knew that he had to escape immediately. So the moment that they uh, raided his mom's house and took her into investigations, he left the country, crossed the river again without her because he just realized he couldn't stay there anymore. Mm. And he left without her. And then after she was interrogated, you know, she was done with that. And then he was able to arrange her escape um, separately from South Korea and get her out. So he had three... Um, three missions to get her out, and the third one worked. Yeah, and he came to South Korea, and the moment he landed, mm. intelligence officials knew what had happened, and they asked him to come in for interrogations, mm-hmm. and he was eventually convicted and sentenced to, um, I think it was six months a term and some probation for violating national security laws. So why is it illegal for him to do what he did? 
So as a South Korean citizen, he needed to get approval from the South Korean government to go back into North Korea, and he clearly did not. And so the moment he came out, they he found out that they had been watching him, had been tracking his cell phone, and mm. um, knew that he had come back to Incheon Airport and contacted him. Has anyone ever successfully received permission from the ministry of, or from the South Korean government to go back to North Korea to get out a family member? To get out a family member? I doubt that. Mm. Right? So uh, how long did he go to jail for? It was supposed to be a three-year term, but the judge gave leniency because it was his first time offense and mm. you know he took um empathy to or sympathy to him for trying to save his mom and lessened his uh three-year term to a six-month term in jail yeah. and then a probation sentence right uh now have there been proven instances of north korean spies who came to south korea as defectors and then went back and back and forth is that a, a realistic scenario or a common scenario I don't know if there are proven instances. There, I think it's always a concern, mm. right, when someone goes back in and then especially comes back out. And so that was he said that was the main crux of the interrogation, right. trying to figure out whether he was a spy. I mean, it's interesting that, that the NIS decided or whoever, somebody decided at some point, even after interrogating him, that, uh, yes, we should go ahead and prosecute this. Like, presumably they understood this is why he went back to North Korea to get his mother out. But they said, nevertheless, we've got to go ahead with it. Right, yeah, they move forward with it anyway. I mean, yeah. even with the guy who jumped over uh, the border, or the acrobat mm. gymnast guy, yeah. um, even with him, there were a lot of speculations about why why right. he had come down, why he had gotten back. So uh, Kim's mother, eventually she came to South Korea. Did she go through the same route that uh, that he did through uh, China, to Th Thailand, and Laos? Yeah, she did. Or China, Laos, and Thailand. Right, um, she did. And then when she came to Seoul, and she, well, she was in Hanawon, she tried to reach her son, but that was when her son was behind bars. He's behind bars, And right. he had not told her. So she was trying to figure out why she couldn't reach him and kind of, you know, cajoled his friends to tell her where he was. And then she found out that, you know, all of that had happened. Now, I'm guessing that she might have been suspected of spying too by the NIS when she turned up. That's a good question. I don't know if she got interrogated or anything. They all go through, um, uh, before they go to Hanawon, they go through a, a period of... Uh, I don't know, confinement, internment, detention, uh, every defector with the NIS, which could be as short as two weeks and can be as long as six months, during which they attempt to uh, verify their bona fides and, and find out, are you a real defector? Are you an ethnic Korean from China? All of these things. Right, right. As a part of the actual intake process yes. after arriving. Yeah. After, and after only after that's been satisfied, then they go on to Hanawon for the training. Yeah, but I don't know if she's gotten anything separate hmm. from that because of her son. Okay. How much did it cost Kim to, to pay these brokers, and, and how did he pay? I mean, that's, that's a lot of money, I've heard. Um, oh, I don't have a specific amount on top of my mind, but he worked all sorts of retail jobs. Like, he worked at a mattress store. He worked at a cell phone store, like, selling cell phones and signing people up. And he said that working those retail jobs helped him get the money to try to pay for his mom. And how are they doing these days? They seem to be doing great, other than the fact that they have a lot of trauma and PTSD. Yeah, so, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a happy ending, but at the same time, his mom is going through a lot of therapy. She's getting uh, medication because mm -hmm. she has a lot of anxiety and depression and PTSD, um, especially her memories of being interrogated. 
And he also suffers from PTSD. He spent a lot of time hiding in the woods before he could make it out the second time of yeah. North Korea. So he like he doesn't go to mountain trips with his friends. He you know there are certain things that trigger him. So the two of them are definitely trying to figure that out. They are seeking help, which is great. But you know there's good and bad too mm. being down here. Yeah, it's a great story, and everyone should uh, go on the uh, the Washington Post website and read it. He escaped North Korea then risked everything to go back for his mom. That's the title. You can find it there. Let's talk about uh, sort of media in general on North Korea. As we know in the media, it's important to get people reading, sharing, engaging with the stories. And that can sometimes mean clickbait and outrageous headlines and speculation and rumor. Does it seem to you that global attention on North Korea as a story has dropped off? I mean, we, I, actually, you've already kind of answered this by saying yes, because we've got the, the war. But how do we get people to look at this stuff again? How do we get eyeballs on our North Korean stories again? <laughs> Yeah, and this is not just a self-serving conversation to get people to read our stuff, right? No, far from. <laughs> far from, far from. You know, I think there, there are two things going on. There's, it's definitely the media environment. It is very saturated, and then there's a war. So that's difficult, and then the, you know, news fatigue. And the other thing is that North Korea itself is not, it's not opening. So mm -hmm. in, you know, I've talked to researchers who are shifting the focus of their research because they just can't get any, you know, real time, not anything close to real time information out of North Korea, any publications that they might be able to access in the past, they can't anymore. Yeah. Um, and, you know, no new defectors coming out to tell us what's happening inside. So even researchers are shifting their focus. Mm. And I think, when that's happening, it is also hard to make things relatable to um, to the audience um, to find something new when North Korea is determined not to produce anything new, it seems. And the U.S. also does not want to, you know, does not seem to make want to make news on North Korea either. So that is difficult. And I think that does make it easy to devolve into clickbaity headlines and kind of latch on to the more sensational parts of Kim yeah. and the personality-driven news that we can kind of easily fall back on. Uh, I think we should fight that and try to think of other ways to present things in a creative way. I really think that at this point, it kind of comes down to format and packaging and timing of North Korea stories because the the appetite definitely is there. Mm. We have seen traffic to certain stories that have run at the right timing in the right headline, the right packaging but it's not for every story but we know the appetite is there we know the audience is there it's just a matter of finding them and on that note i was excited to learn about how you're experimenting with other formats to reach people on different platforms uh, in particular the youth audience tell us about your series what's going on in north korea that you started on your tiktok account i've heard of tiktok <laughs> It's where the youths live. Oh. <laughs> so that is one thing I have been experimenting with, um, kind of riffing off of the What's Going On in Myanmar uh, series right. on social media. And I started with that story that you mentioned earlier on about what's, you know, the window being slammed shut yeah. and kind of started with that and tried to tell people like, look, it's always hard to get real information about North Korea, but it's harder and here are the reasons why. And there are so many things to say about this topic that I realized I couldn't do it in one 30-second video. So I started a series like basically what's going on in North Korea. And sometimes those TikTok videos get more views than people actually read my articles. Ah. So it's it's a compliment. Com C-O-M-P. 
L-E-M-E-N-T, complement to the written product. Mm -hmm. But I do think it definitely serves an audience that is interested in these issues and like human rights issues and uh, marginalized communities issues. So sort of like more social justice-y, you know, globally minded audience on TikTok who does want to read about or learn about North Korea, but does not necessarily want to read a thousand words on it. Mm. And I think it does reach them. And they do ask me questions on TikTok and I answer them in video. I don't always do these videos. Uh, I'm Since I'm not a full-time content creator, uh-huh. I try to do this in my free time, but I do find it worthwhile because um, I have found an audience there and people are interested. Now, do you have to sacrifice detail? I mean, are you dumbing it down to a certain extent? I think it's... I don't think it's necessarily dumbing it down, especially because I'm doing it in a series so Mm. I can expand on certain things I mentioned earlier on. Not that everyone's watching every single one of them, but there is room to have some detail. You just you do have to condense it in like a, you know, 30 second, 45 second timeline. But Ah, to be honest, as as reader, I mean, as writers, we do write very long anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's like if you want to tell, you know, my little sister is 25. If I tried to tell her something about North Korea and made her read my 1200 word story she would not like that but i could tell her the highlights in 45 seconds and i try to think of it that way does what's the uh, the length limit of uh, tiktok videos i mean you should really not go past 15 seconds but ah, but does the technology <laughs> you can go even up to three minutes now Oh, okay uh, now you've also turned some of your articles into instagram uh, videos yeah it's I the s- same idea i mean just trying to reach audiences where they are yeah and not many of them are really coming to the website to read, mm. but they are aware of the news and aware of uh, are reporting on North Korea and do want to see it. Sometimes the TikTok videos are interchangeable to become Instagram reels. Right. So that's really convenient because I could get, you know, kill two birds with one stone that way. Yep. But also sometimes on Instagram, I could do different types of videos depending on the audience because I think the audience on certainly my Instagram is just more aware of Korea. So you have to do... You don't have to do as much explaining of the background. Mm-hmm. But I, like I said, I do find it worthwhile. I mean, going back to the packaging of stories, one of the stories that did get attention this year for us was when we did a story about how North Korea is one of two countries in the world without vaccines, ah. which is something we've known for a long time. And I had done a story many months before that talking just about this. But we published that story with that headline. Yep at a time when many countries were reopening after mm. getting the third booster. So people were thinking about reopening borders. People were thinking about vaccines. Yep. So doing a story saying, by the way, here, you know, here are two countries that don't have vaccines and are not reopening. One of them is North Korea. Remember them? Remember Kim? And putting it out in that format and that framing got a lot of attention. Now I want to know what the other country is. Eritrea. Ah, Okay. Now, I saw um, one of your Instagram videos uh, that's also on TikTok. Uh, you released it five days ago about North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's daughter. In this video, you filmed yourself against a green screen background, which showed giant images released by North Korean media of Kim Jong-un and his daughter at the missile launch. And that gave me quite an uncanny feeling. It was almost like you were there, <laughs> it, like a mini version of you was there. If uh, only. Yeah. Uh, so now in this, this story that's been you know really the hot topic, uh, the talk of the town this week about... Kim's daughter and what her position may be in any f- possible future succession. Is that sensationalism and idle speculation or is there a there there? The speculation about succession, you mean? Uh, about who she is and what her name might be and, and, and why she's suddenly out with daddy in, in public. Yeah, in a way it reminded me of like, 
it made me feel like we're covering celebrity news. Like, mm. Oh, yeah, know. look, the Kardashians are up to something. Oh, right. the Kims they are up to something. They released their new baby photos. Right. And, you know, see Kanye West. I guess they're not together anymore. But it kind of reminded me of that. But I think those times, especially, it's on us as the reporters to eschew the sensational aspect of it and jumping to all the succession questions and instead, like, trying to give context about why it is significant that he released these photos how he is different from his father and grandfather in that sense, you know, how he's changed the way propaganda is portrayed sometimes, especially in like a more relatable and human way, Mm. rather than saying like, oh, this means that, you know, there could be a woman leader in North Korea, which, you know, again, it's fine to think about those things and write about that as a theory. But I think it is important for us when all the clickbaity headlines are going to oh my God, what does this mean? Is you know is she going to be the next leader of North Korea? Trying to take a step back and explaining it a little more with credible expert insight. And in the TikTok slash Instagram video, I did try to, I mean, it is, it's very visual, that story, because mm-hmm. the photos are there. Yeah. You see the missile, you see Kim, you see his daughter. So it's immediately relatable for a visual audience. But it is also up to me at that point to not make it super sensational and tell them just here are some theories about why this could be significant. Now, that video, the uh, Daddy Brings His Daughter to Work Day, is available on both TikTok and Instagram. Which of those two platforms has had more views or more engagement as far as you can see? Oh, they're very different in their own ways. TikTok is so strange. Sometimes videos can get like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of views just out of nowhere. And then the rest of your videos might get like maybe a thousand or two thousand. So it really, the virality on TikTok is really unpredictable, um, especially as a non-full-time content creator. Yeah. But uh, when it goes big on TikTok, it goes very big and it gets a lot of attention and it brings attention to your previous videos on TikTok. That's why I think it's worth continuing to post there. On Instagram, I have very steady engagement from people who like know me and know my work and follow me for a reason. Whereas TikTok, you kind of end up on someone's timeline and then you kind of get their attention and go away. So I think the intensity of engagement is bigger on TikTok, but the sustainability of engagement is longer on Instagram. Have you gone big on TikTok yet or is that still in the future? <laughs> what is big on TikTok? Well, there's, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of viral views. Uh, I did get like a million view one hey. and a hundreds of thousands of view one. Okay. And I was thought I was your... a TikTok star, but I was not. Was that part of the North Korea, what's happening in North Korea series? It was actually a a, a Tokyo Olympics uh, videos that I did last year. But what's happening in North Korea videos have gotten like tens of thousands of views each, which is great. Now, what does that do to your business model there? Uh, You know, I mean, the the goal of of all subscription-based media, the Washington Post and NK News included, is you want to get people to subscribe and read the articles. Now, people on uh, TikTok and Instagram can watch these things for free. Are you trying to drive people to the website? What's what's going on there? Are your editors asking qu- these kinds of questions too? No, they're they're supportive of engaging on other platforms, even if it doesn't mean direct subscriptions. I think for me as a reporter, what matters most is to get the news out to as many different audiences as, as possible, even if it doesn't mean in words. And I'm fine with that. And I think from the Post's perspective, the general view is like the more our reporters are out there engaging with readers, engaging with viewers and spreading the post brand and reporting Mm. the better and that hopefully in the future it could lead to subscriptions and there are other people who are paid to figure out how to turn those into subscriptions but my job is to try to engage as many 
people in the news that I cover, I think. Are you familiar with the uh, the two North Korean YouTube channels, Peter News and Sally Parks, or the Songha channel? No. Uh, Peter News is not a big hit. His, review, his videos only get a couple of uh, hundred uh, each time, but uh, they're uh, pretty. They're uploaded quite regularly. In fact, I think one just came up in the last twelve hours, which is uh, showing uh, a family having a family musical time at home. But the videos of uh, Songa Im Songa are. Uh, um, much more popular. They've garnered well over 100,000 views. One even got 350,000 views. And it's the, um, the young 9, 10, or 11-year-old North Korean girl who speaks with a very posh English accent. Uh, we've written a story about her, or made one or two stories about her here at NK News. But I just wonder, sometimes looking at their numbers, I wonder, how are they doing so well? How are they getting so many? Does that mean there are a lot of people who are fans of, uh, of what the North Korean government is doing, or are they just looking for something that's weird? Yeah, I mean, I think now that you mentioned the second one, I remember reading about that on NK News. I don't watch them regularly. I should. I, I do wonder if that also has an impact on news consumption of North Korean news from us, mm. right? Because there are these other ways for people to view North Korean personalities in platforms that they want to view them. Yeah. And they don't necessarily want an arbiter like us telling them, mm. oh, but this may not be true. Oh, here's what experts say. And that's how many readers and you know many news consumers are choosing to get their news. And that's what we're dealing with overall as reporters, as journalists, but certainly with North Korean news, it you know maybe that is one reason why people aren't choosing to read the types of North Korean stories they used to anymore because mm. they have other options, other ways to get news that they want in the way that they want it. Right, unmediated. Yeah. Without the media, uh, do you think you'll ever be able to visit North Korea on a reporting trip? I hope so. You, you do want to go, do you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, a naturalized U.S. citizen. Yeah. I was born in Korea. I don't know if they will see that as a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, they, they've they've kind of gone both ways. On uh, I've seen some Korean Americans have a really good time yeah. in in North Korea, and, and some not so much. So, but uh, it, when when North Korea does open up again, would you uh, consider applying for a uh, one of those special visas? Sorry, special passports from the U.S. State Department to, uh, to get in there as a reporter? Yeah, absolutely. The moment they open, I would like to go in. Okay, well, that is a good place for us to finish today. Uh, even though we've got 11 hours on the clock left, according <laughs> to my uh, really dumbly uh, put-together Google Calendar invite, thank you once again, Michelle, for coming on the show. You can find her Twitter at M-Y-H-L-E-E. And uh, that is the end of our podcast today, ladies and gentlemen. If you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform which offers unparalleled services specifically catering to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access and a free trial membership by sending an email to membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to me at podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, go to Brian Betts and Arias Dare for facilitating this episode, and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius, who cuts out all the coughing. Thank you very much, and listen again next time. 